0: Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Harrington as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles and turn to Luke, if you would please, chapter 22, as we're continuing to make our way. Verses 35 through 38 is our passage this morning as we look at provisions, protection, and prediction. Luke chapter 22. Dawn and I have been captivated by the television series alone. Ten people are dropped off in the middle of nowhere with only ten items chosen by the contestants to aid them in their journey. They are given cameras to capture their daily activities, building a shelter, starting a fire, and finding food. They receive no outside assistance assistance, and have to fend for themselves in all ways. They display a disclaimer before each episode stating that all the contestants are either trained or experienced outdoorsmen. Now, it's interesting to watch them as they prioritize the various tasks it takes to survive in a hostile environment filled with bears, wolverines, and wolves, along with unpredictable weather. In other words, do you go with shelter first or fire first or food? And there's always that debate, but there's harsh conditions and there's other dangers that they're going to have to face. Even though all of them have been trained many of them spending years preparing for such uh, adventures, and some of them being the trainers who train others to do that, they usually find one obstacle that brings them to their knees. The sound of silence, of being alone of missing their families, their friends. The desperation that comes when things do not work out as they expected makes it even more intense. Even the most hardened, the toughest, and the inventive become confused, frustrated, and defeated, and eventually tap out. I can't go anymore. That's how it ends. They would call in and say, I'm done. And so they would come through different methods and pick them up. It seems to me that even the most prepared, trained, and strongest can falter even when faced with a formidable foe. In today's passage, Luke records another conversation between Jesus and his disciples where he once again tries to prepare them for the hostility that they are about to face. As usual, they fail to understand his warnings and predictions, which will lead them to tap out when faced with oppositions and oppression very soon. We see this in Luke chapter 22, verse 35. It's going to be here on the screen, the first part. And Jesus said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they responded, nothing. Father, you have given us all that we need, all the things that pertain to life and godliness, to pursue holiness Father, you have given us uh, your great gift of salvation a reconciliation. But yet, even as you've given us the ministry of reconciliation to continue the ministry of Christ, we live in a hostile environment that's very, very difficult as Christians, believers to live in, to cope with. And there are many times, Father, we are, we are uh, tempted to tap out, so to speak, and forsake our mission to make disciples, to teach all that you've given us. So, Father, I pray that as disciples, as we gather this passage, that you would strengthen us. Father, that we will not falter where they faltered. Where they failed, we will not fail. Help us to understand what's going on in this passage, to apply it to our lives, to understand it. Lord, for your glory and our good, we pray. Amen. Now, as we've learned throughout our study of the Gospel of Luke, humility and perseverance are required to enter the kingdom of God so when you and I as Christians when we enter in this world at first we're we're ready to tackle everything we're like Peter we grab our sword and our shield and say I'm ready to tackle the world only to see Satan come against us and all of a sudden we feel the blows against the shield we feel our grip on the sword lightning and all of a sudden we're ready to drop turn and run but God wants us to persevere. He wants us to have humility, not the, that that, that foot in the mouth disease that Peter was so guilty of, 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 of claiming a, a false bravado, but then failing. That's what we looked at last week. You see, Satan is looking to sift the children of God to sever them from Christ and destroy your character. But God is faithful to restore us, knowing that there will be times that we will fail, but yet he loves us and restores us to fellowship. And we're to use that comfort that when he comforts us to encourage other Christians to continue to follow Christ. Now, as we come to this passage, Jesus and disciples are still in the upper room. After observing the Passover and learning the institution of the new covenant, John MacArthur points out that this night is a night full of troubles. There's a betrayer, there's disciples arguing, there's Satan who is sifting, there's Peter bragging, and now the words of a new hostile world that's going to cause oppression. However, what we also need to recognize is not only going to be needing provision, protection, but there's a prediction is that this trouble will eventually lead to triumph. Provision, protection, predictions are the theme of this passage as he seeks to encourage them and prepare them for the ministry. <clears throat> After warning them about Satan's scheme to sift him, Jesus asked them a question. The question we just read serves to remind them of the two times he sent them without any provisions earlier in the ministry. The first time he sent just the twelve, instructing them, Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. But go and share the ministry, healing those I've given you that authority. The second time you and I read in Luke was with 72 other disciples where he sent them out in pairs. And we read that for the most part, they were very well received. Luke records their enthusiastic report when he says, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from behold from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over the power of the enemy and nothing Shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. The question about supplies was there enough provision? And the answer was that everything that was needed for that journey was provided, was through the hospitality of others as God encouraged them, as those who received the gospel with joy and generosity supplied what was needed. However, Jesus now instructions, instructs them that things are about to change. Look at verse 36. Jesus says, but now let the one who has a money bag take it. And likewise, a knapsack, just talking like a backpack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Thomas Schreiner writes, you see here on the monitor, that the new situation that we're seeing after Jesus' death and resurrection is going to be radically different. Now opponents and adversaries are going to be everywhere. Now the power of darkness has descended upon the world and the disciples are going to be in a great conflict. Everything here is not about to be rosy. Jesus is warning that they will need both provision and and protection as they continue the ministry of Christ in sharing the good news of the kingdom of God. However, as John MacArthur points out, when Christ went out before them, he had sovereignly arranged for their needs to be met. Hence why they did not need anything the first two times. Henceforth, they are now to use normal means to provide their own support and protection, not meaning that God will not provide, but they also are going to join in. The money the, the money bag, the knapsack, and the sword were figuratively, expre- or figurative expressions for such means. Jesus then makes a prediction in verse 37, which gets to the the, the, the meat of what we're talking about this morning, which is, for I tell you, <clears throat> this scripture must be fulfilled in me. So yeah, what scripture is he talking about? What about swords, cloak, uh, provision? No, this one right here, and you may want to underline this. And he was numbered with the transgressors. We read that earlier in Isaiah, fifty Isaiah fifty three verse twelve. For what is written about me, Jesus says, has its fulfillment. Jesus is making a bold statement here that he is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies given almost five hundred years or so before. He wants the disciples to be aware that the horrible events that are about to transpire were planned, purposed, and prepared by God himself. Knowing that this is about to happen is going to be confusing and chilling, but he does not want them to lose their faith, but to be courageous, ready to face the hostility. In response, they reply in verse 38, the disciples... And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords as they point to the corner. And these times these swords here aren't these big swords that you and I think of, but they were short swords, almost just like little large knives. Here we have two swords. Is is that enough? And at first it seems that they understood his warnings. Well, we got two of them. Do we still need to go get some more? However, as we're going to see, they totally misunderstand what Jesus is teaching them. Pastor MacArthur notes that they mistakenly took his words literally as if they're truly going to need swords. Jesus, we see, ends the discussion very abruptly when he responds, it is enough. Seemingly frustrated with his disciples' attitudes. In what way he's really saying here is in what way do these disciples that think that two uh, two uh, long knives are going to be able to take on a world that is hostile to their faith? How is two swords enough against the might and the power of the Roman Empire or even the Herodian guards that Jesus is going to face? Now, we shouldn't be too harsh with these disciples However, as we have the benefit of hindsight to understand Jesus' words. In this time, the Holy Spirit has not been gifted that would help them understand the teachings of Jesus as you and I have today. Left to their frail human minds, they're at a loss for the meanings of the events about to take place shortly. Now, there are several things that you and I can learn from this passage in this passage. So first, to do that, I want to turn to First Peter chapter four. And I think it's always interesting to see what Peter has to say later in life, because he's one of the main ones that Jesus is talking to, and he's probably the one answering: hey, I've got two short kni- or two long knives here. Is that enough to face the hostility of the world? But now come and see what he has to say years later. <clears throat> so the first truth is you're turning to 1 Peter 4. Let me give you the first truth. The first spiritual truth that we can learn from this is that hostilities are to be expected. You and I need to understand that hostilities are being expected from those of us who are believers. Hostilities are to be expected for all who will profess that Christ is the Son of the living God. In his first letter, Peter writes to encourage his readers to remain steadfast in a world that is hostile to their faith. First Peter chapter 4, look at verse 12 with me. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though it was something what strange was happening. Have you ever had that? Why am I receiving such hostility? Why is it that when I when I ask someone to come to church, they give me that look? Why do I feel so, so ridiculed when when I stand up for the things of Christ? Why are we being canceled if we say that there's only two genders, men and women? What, what, male or female? Why, 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 why are people against us when we say we believe in traditional marriage? Why are they against us if we believe that killing of the unborn is murder? We need to understand that we need to expect hostility. The Bible says that the mind, the natural mind, is hostile to the things of God. So we should not be surprised, but unfortunately, too many times we are. Look at verse 13. He says, don't be surprised, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering. In other words, just as Christ suffered ridicule, mocking, as we sung about, as he uh, endured sufferings, you need to recognize that you and I will also receive the same. That you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. In other words, instead of being angry, instead of frustrating, confusing, or tapping out of the Christian life, you and I are to rejoice that we can suffer as Christ did. Look at verse 14. For if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are what? Blessed, because the spirit of the glory of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. So in other words, if you're going to suffer, don't let it be because you're a bad person, but be willing to suffer through the things of Christ. Look at verse 16. He, re- he reiterates that when he says, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. I'm sure the words of Paul are echoing in his mind. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power unto salvation, but let him glorify God in that name. The name above all names, as we sung earlier. Then verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So in other words, you and I recognize that one day we'll stand before God. And instead of tapping out, instead of sulking away. Instead of shaking our fist at God because of the frustrations or the anger that we're receiving from others. We are to recognize that we will stand and be evaluated by him. And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become the ungodly and the sinners? Our hearts are not to be to run from the gospel, but to run to the gospel and to share it with those that are persecuting us. Why? Because at least you and I may suffer in this world, but we have salvation. We have an inheritance in eternal life. But those who are persecuting, those who are ridiculing us today, they have no hope. So if we take our ball and go home, so to speak, the ball being the gospel, then what hope do they have? Therefore, verse 19, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So in this passage, we find three attitudes and a warning. It's going to be up on the screen. Number one is you and I need to be prepared spiritually, mentally, and emotionally for suffering. Now, that suffering is not uh, a dying on the cross. It's not being whipped, though in some worlds, in some, or not some worlds, some countries, that is happening to Christians. They're being beaten. They're being tortured for their faith. You know, you and I so many times have a Western world view of what Christianity is about. You and I know nothing about persecution. I even tend to, to be very careful to say that we we in the United States are persecuted because we don't even know what persecution is. But you and I need to be prepared for it. Because the days are here and are coming more and more that if you're standing for your faith, you need to be spiritually, mentally, and emotionally ready for suffering for ridicule, for mocking, for your family members to refuse to be with you. And we've had that even in our church. We've had some whose family want nothing to do with them because of their faith. You and I need to be ready for that hostility. The disciples weren't, and when push came to shove, as we'll see in a week or two, they ran. They ran with all their might. We see Peter himself denies Christ three times. Number two is we need to rejoice and be glad in suffering, knowing that Christ will vindicate and exalt Christ. Because when we suffer for Christ, that brings glory to God. It's for our good and even for those who persecute. That's why he says, pray for those who persecute you, love your enemies. Why? Because it shows them a different response. Number three, trust that God will guard and protect you in suffering. That doesn't mean that you'll come out unharmed, but we know that whoever, that, 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 that they may kill the body and soul. He says, fear the one who can kill the, or don't fear the one who kills the body, excuse me. Do not fear the one who kills the body, but fear the one who can kill the body and the soul. It's only God that can kill the soul. The worst they can do for you is kill your body kill you personally now that's a pretty big deal I'm not diminishing that at all I'm not volunteering to be flayed alive in some form or fashion let me tell you and as we talked about last week with false bravado if you were to ask me would you die for Christ if your gun was pointed at your head I would like to say yes I would die but to be honest I do not know I would even be less if they were say if you don't deny Christ we'll kill your grandchildren I don't know what I would do I don't know how I would stand. But I must trust in God during that time. And then number four, warning to evaluate the source of your suffering. So many Christians today are bemoaning the suffering, but you're suffering not because of the sake of Christ, but for the sake of your own passions and desires. You're suffering maybe financially, maybe in your relationships, maybe at work, maybe in just your emotional state because you're pursuing the things that are not of God. So evaluate your suffering. Is it because it's for your stand for Christ? Or maybe it's just you're a jerk. And that's why people don't like you. You know? You can be a jerk for Christ, too. You know? Turn or burn. People coming up to you all the time. Well, if you don't stop that, God hates you. What a terrible thing that once we would stand with God-hate fags. How in the way is that loving and kind and gentle? How is that reasonable, as Peter would say? So you and I need to look and see, have we been jerks for Christ? Or have we been those who want to serve Christ? So first, we need to expect hostility. That is going to come. That's what Jesus is trying to tell his disciples. It's going over their head. That's what he's trying to teach them. The second thing that Jesus is teaching them here that you and I need to grasp is that scripture will be fulfilled. Scripture will be fulfilled. The Bible is more than just a collection of myths, legend, and ancient writings. It's not Homer's, uh, uh, Homer, or Aesop's, Aesop's uh, uh, fables. Thank you. It's more than just the Iliad or, or some other writing of that nature. They are the very words of God written to reveal himself to us. The Bible tells us who he is. It tells us who we are and what he expects of us as well as what we can expect from him. The words of God are to be treasured above all things as Charles Spurgeon says here. If the heavenly gold is not worth digging for, you are not likely to discover it. But it is. We need to take that pickaxe, spiritually speaking, figuratively speaking, not literally here. Let's not be the disciples. And we need to pick at the truths that are found and reach for those golden nuggets of scripture. Many would declare that the Bible is written by men and should be, be no more important than any other ancient text. However, as Peter writes, knowing that, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Speaking of the Bible, it's not just someone's imaginations, but men spoke from God as they were carried along with the Holy Spirit. When someone says it's just written by men, It's true to a point because God is the one who gave him the very words to say and each jot and tittle will be fulfilled. There is nothing that is found in God's word that will not be followed. Any promise, any blessing, any curse, all of it finds its culmination in Jesus Christ. And since it is the word of God, it carries the whole weight of God's glory and promises. Many of us take our Bibles and we throw it off in a corner and we never look at it till next Sunday or in the next Sunday school or something of that nature, gathering dust. But we need to understand that that Bible, no matter how much it weighs in your hand, has the full weight of God's glory and counsel in it. We must not treat it wrongly or despise it, neglect it. The psalmist sings, you'll see here, Psalms thirty-three, eleven, that the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generations. Again, he sings, my plans, speaking of God, are in man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. Or many are the plans in man's heart, but the counsel of God's will The prophet Isaiah captures the testimony of Yahweh, God himself, in Isaiah 46. When God says, for I am God and there is no other. Get that. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient things to not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. Right here, Jesus is saying, in me, I am fulfilling scripture. And though the disciples were unaware of what was about to happen, speaking of the crucifixion, the betrayal, the torture, Jesus did. Jesus was very aware of what was awaiting him. And Jesus is encouraging them that though in very few short hours it may seem like evil is winning, Victory is assured as God the Father is in control of all events, circumstances, and decisions, even the murder of his own son. So when you and I are here, and we're on Instagram, we're on Twitter, we're on the news, and we're seeing all that's going on, and the world just seems to be afire, we must trust that God is in control. No matter what is happening in your life, with relationships, with finances, God is in control. God's plan of redemption is right on schedule. All the players are on the stage. Each has his part to play, and the children of God are going to be redeemed. Amen? Amen. Scripture will be fulfilled. And so we can say today, as this world is, is, seems to be on fire, we are becoming more and more of a negative culture in America, meaning that, that there used to be, that, that one man, Aaron Wren, has, has marked it this way, and I, I think he's done it well, is that when America started, we lived in a, or, or when after Christ, eventually the world became a positive. Let's speak of America at this point. A positive view. Being a Christian was a positive thing. It was good. All of our universities, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, all of those were Christian universities. I don't know if you knew that, but they all began as Christian universities to prepare students for divinity, for preaching and teaching. But then our world in the 50s and the 60s, mainly the 60s, became then kind of a neutral world. In other words, it was okay to be a Christian. It didn't give you a leg up, but you know what? We were okay. Let let, What's that phrase? Live and let live? Is that the phrase? But now pretty much since 2011, 2008, the world has become a negative. And you and I live in a world now that being a Christian is not neutral. It's a negative because your beliefs, the things that you hold true are now considered things to be canceled, things you should be fired for, things that are hate speech. We live in a world today that if you go and pray silently at an abortion clinic in, in, in England, you can be arrested for praying in your head. But you and I need to understand that God is in control. And even there's more scripture that still needs to be fulfilled. I think that's where I was. I kind of lost my mind there for a minute. What was I talking about? But there are many things that scripture has. Christ is returning, amen? To rule in righteousness and peace. There will be no peace in Jerusalem in the Middle East until Christ comes. There may be some fake peace, some temporary peace, but there will be no true peace until Christ comes again. Thirdly, I believe the last truth that I want to get to, not by the least, but the last, is Jesus will serve as the last and final Passover lamb. There's a phrase I wanted you to underline when we're reading. He was numbered among the transgressors. Jesus is the innocent for the guilty. He's a substitute. The apostle Paul writes, I believe it might be here on the monitor, for our sake, he, Jesus made him Jesus, or for he say, God made him Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. That was what we sung about earlier in Jesus Messiah. This is what is meant when Jesus says that he will be numbered with the transgressors. He will die along with two criminals suffering a cruel death that was reserved for the worst of criminals Jesus will be considered as a lawless one a sinner even today though many consider Jesus a good moral teacher, others take a different point of view let's get one conservative favorite Ben Shapiro I think it might be up here in an interview with Joe Rogan this is what Ben Shapiro said he says the Jewish point of view is that we do not believe in the divinity of Christ and no we don't believe he is a prophet we think historically he was a Jew who tried to lead a revolt against the Romans and he got killed for his trouble just like a lot of the other Jews at that time who were trying to be or who were crucified for trying to lead the revolts against the Romans and got killed for their troubles. Ben Shapiro who denies Christ, who denies the New Testament is is quoting not knowing it was referring to Isaiah 53:12 that Jesus was numbered or counted among the transgressors. Scripture tells us that you and I are all guilty of sin, of rebelling against our Creator. Due to our first parent, Adam, all of humanity is under the curse of sin and death. But the gift of God is eternal life for all who repent and put their trust in the works of Christ. He informs the Christians at the Church of Rome that as one trespass, one sin, speaking of Adam, disobeying God led to condemnation for all men. So one act of righteousness, speaking of Christ, being obedient to death, leads to justification, a declaration of not guilty, and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, speaking of Adam, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, speaking of Christ, the many will be made righteous. This great and wonderful doctrine is called atonement. The atonement of Christ is the work of Christ that he did in his life and death to earn our salvation. This includes his suffering, his taking upon our sins, the satisfying of the wrath of God, and earning God's favor. Wayne Grumman explains the doctrine of atonement when he writes that the cause of the atonement is both the love and and the justice of God, for God so loved the world, right? But also in Romans, where He says the penalty of sin is what death. And though it can be a hard concept to grasp, we must understand that the penalty of sin was inflicted not by Pontius Pilate and Herod and them, but was inflicted by God the Father. And though it will come through the schemes and the hands of men, it is the Father's plan purpose and providence that prompts the most horrible and often awful sin ever completed the death of christ this atonement is necessary as jesus says it is fulfilled in me it is necessary as sin separates us from the father and justice demands the punishment of death death is more than just the decaying of the flesh but also the eternal separation of the goodness and blessings of God for eternity. Grubman goes out on to point out that we would have to suffer eternally because we could never make our sinful nature righteous. But, he goes on to write, Christ had a sinless nature. In other words, there was no impetus within him to sin, to disobey the Father, to disobey the word of God. Christ alone was able to pull the full measure of God's wrath to the end. The atonement was primarily something that happened between Christ and God, the father, the father sent the son who obediently and willingly endured the indignity of human flesh and offered himself as a substitute sacrifice. He did this knowing that because of our disobedience and hardened hearts, you and I deserve to die and bear God's wrath because you and I are separated from God and in bondage or enslaved to sin. And also because we face powerful enemies, Satan, his demons, and our own desires that pull us down. Through the atonement, Jesus provided a solution so that we might be reconciled to God. You see this here. He gave us a sacrifice to bear the penalty of death in our place, just as, as Moses and them would, would bring a, a lamb at once a year, and they were to sacrifice that innocent lamb, blameless and, 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 and without blemish, they would kill that lamb and it would cover their sins. That's what Jesus did. He was our substitute. He died in our place. He was counted as my sin. the propitiation, again, a big word, to bear God's wrath in our place and to earn God's favor reconciliation to make us right with God. And that's what you and I want is to be reconciled with God. And then redemption is to ransom us from sin and the kingdom of Satan. The penalty of sin is broken. We're delivered from the pres- or the power of sin. And as we always say, one day you and I will be delivered from the presence of sin. As the last and final Passover lamb, Jesus serves as our substitute sacrifice and makes us clean. The promise of Leviticus 1630 is finally realized where we see, for on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. Moses, what God was saying to Moses when they would have the day of atonement, you shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. Our day of atonement was the day that Christ died for us. We we're cleansed. We we're made as he regenerates us, as we turn and we put our trust in Christ and we are justified in his sight so those are the three spiritual truths that you and i need to grab from these three four verses in this passage so the question though that i have before you this morning is now what so what so he's trying to teach him and the the disciples are failing to understand what he's saying What are you and I to do with this passage? How does this inform us how we are to live in a society that is hostile to our faith? The answers are simple. Be prepared to follow Christ in a world that is hostile to our faith. You and I need to understand that we are living in a negative culture, a negative world. This is a world that hates Christ. You may say, well, doesn't it hate me? No, it doesn't hate you. Jesus says, the world doesn't hate you. Now, you may bear this hate, but the world doesn't hate you. They hate Christ. So let me say to the parent or to, to you who may, who may be losing a child or because of your faith or be struggling at work because of ridicule or mocking. It is not you. They hate Christ. That's the object of their wrath and this, their, their their discord. uh, I can't think of the word of their hatred and their anger. Thomas Schreiner summarizes this passage here. I put it up for you see me see it. He says, when the days of evil come, we are tempted to rely on the flesh, on human, human wisdom, human strategies, and human strength. And right now, I'll, I'll just say, just as a side note, that is happening today. Those who say what we need to do is we need a Christian nation. We need to hire, you know, we need to do everything that we can. We may even need to take up arms to fight. But we're not to take up swords and fights it's not the kingdom of god we desperately want security he says and we are tempted to fight in other places other than the lord jesus reminds us that we need to be prepared spiritually for the battle as we face opposition in bringing the glorious good news to the nation remember that is what we're to do you see, but they don't want to hear it you give it too many ways they're shutting the doors when I knock and I, and I leave them a track or say, hey, I want to invite you to church. My friends don't want to hear about it. We give it to them anyway. Why? Because it's the good news. They need it. He goes on to write, we also see here that Jesus will be counted among the sinners. That he'll be reckoned as a sinner for our sake and our salvation. All of us are transgressors. All of us have failed to please God. And Jesus will be counted as one of us so that we may find forgiveness and joy. You and I can face the winds of that hostility because of Jesus Christ, because he faced it. That's why Hebrews says, let us endure the race, putting aside the sin that so easily besets us, looking to Jesus, the the finisher, the author and finisher, Of our faith. The kingdom of God, the gospel, does not advance by or through the sword as Islam does. No, it advances one heart at a time as the Holy Spirit regenerates all those that God has chosen who then repent or respond in faith. Knowing this, let me give you four things that you and I need to do. Knowing this, we must be expected to be hated. And walk still in a manner that is worthy of Christ. Expect the unexpected. Expect to face hostility. Find the courage to keep walking in the face of that heavy wind. Understand that the wrestle is not against flesh and blood, but the schemes of Satan. So many of us are fighting our spouses we're fighting our children. We're fighting our bosses at work. We're fighting. Uh, we're fighting all sorts of things. But but that's not the battle. The battle is the schemes of Satan. That's what he tells us in, in, in Corinthians. we rest not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. That's why he tells us to take every thought into captive. Any opinion that rises up against God. We're to bring into captivity, number three, all opinions, philosophies, and declarations that are against Scripture. Then we need to put on the armor of God found in Ephesians 6. We went over this several weeks ago, so I won't belabor the point. But we need to be ready. But we need to recognize that we can be as ready and prepared as we think we are. We can train for it. But there's always going to be something that we did not expect. There are going to be times that we're going to be tempted to tap out. We feel alone. We feel that it's become too tough. We feel like there's no way to escape. But we need to remember that Christ endured. We can too. Paul informs us that we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. And we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You and I have a ministry Jesus is, is trying to train and teach his disciples. Listen, you are going to be given a mission and you're going to face a hostility that you did not face before when you went through Israel. This hostility is going to have the power of the whole might of not only uh, of all of Jews, Israel and all of the Old Testament that the Jews will try to use against you, but also the might of the Roman Empire to say that Caesar is not Lord could cause death. But he says, this is the ministry that you have. You need to be ready. And that same ministry of reconciliation has been given to you and I. So we cannot let anything stand in that way. We need to be prepared. We need to be ready. We need to understand. And the truth is, is Christ has came so that we can share that gospel with others. Instead of ending with a verse, I want to end by a quote. It's by Hugh Latimer. Hugh Latimer uh, encouraged Nicholas Riley, who were partners in Christ. They were tied to the wooden stake to be burned by Queen Mary, Queen Bloody Mary in England on October 16th, 1555, for the crime of sharing the gospel. And as they were in that fire and they lit the fire, they cry out, be of good cheer, Ridley, and play the man. We shall his day or this day by God's grace light up such a candle in England as I trust will never be put out. How many of us can have that type of courage? You can light me on fire. I'm just going to be a light, a strong candle that others may see Christ. That's how I want you to see the hostility you face. That's the way the scripture want you to see what you will suffer for him, is that you're burning bright as a candle, not to be hid, but to be put on, so that others may see who Jesus Christ is. May God prepare us for the difficult times that are ahead. Remember that Christ was numbered as us, so that we may share the gospel with others. Amen? Every head bowed, every eye closed just for a moment. I'm going to ask the worship team and Randy to come up. And again, I just want to take a moment to pause and consider what we said, because I know that we're going to get in our cars, we're going to eat lunch, we're going to do all sorts of things, and then we just forget about this message until I review it next week. But this week, I really, truly want you to consider Christ's words, the disciples' response. And I want you to pray and ask the Spirit, what can I learn from this passage? In what way can I apply these spiritual truths? That's why I encourage you to write them down or take pictures uh, of the the slides so you may know how to pray this week. Lord, prepare me to face this. Lord, prepare me to endure so that others may come to know you, to glorify God and for their good. Would you pray and respond to the Spirit's work? in confessing sin, repenting of it, turning towards Christ, and preparing yourself for the day that you will face hostility as Christ faced. Mary, would you come and close us in a prayer? We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.